Uh, Please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 5. If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 56. And we're actually going to start a few verses back in verse chapter 4, verse 29, and read all the way through 6, verse 1. So far we've seen Israel distressed and oppressed in Egypt. God has come to Moses and revealed to him his plan to deliver uh, Israel from Egypt and told Moses that he is going to act as God's representative. And then in verse 29 of chapter 4, the story jumps back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron are there. And we pick up uh, uh, with their arrival in Egypt. Uh, because I didn't find a better place to put it in my sermon, I'll just tell you here. Um, the historical records we have from ancient Egypt are inevitably propping up the Pharaoh, making him look good. So Egypt is never going to record, by the way, we were totally gutted, uh, routed by this other god, and all these people left. But the details in chapters like this fit entirely with the best we can understand the Egyptian situation. Uh, In Israel, you're in hill country, it's very rocky, and so buildings were built with rocks put together, uh, you know, fitted together. In Egypt, building, there wasn't rocks, it's sandy soil, building was made with bricks, and the bricks were made with straw. And we know from various Egyptian historical records that the sorts of layers of management we see in this passage uh, were indeed the way Egypt was structured. We know uh, uh, a, a perpetual issue was upper management setting quotas for production of bricks and those sorts of things that were unrealistic. So if you've ever worked in like a lean manufacturing, uh, uh, what do you call it, factory, you know how this works. Upper management sets goals. Uh, the actual people doing the work know it's unrealistic and there's constant back and forth. Well, that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and we know from historical record that lots of Semitic people were forced into labor in Egypt during this time. So as I read through this chapter, just pick up a few of these details. Egypt was like. Okay, that's out of the way. Now we'll focus on the chapter here. Uh, it's a dark chapter. We're going to begin, though, with a high note in 429, and then I'll read through 6.1. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. 
Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they ask us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is God's word. If you remember back to last week's chapter, Moses had thought that even the elders of the people of Israel wouldn't listen to him. That's one of his objections to God. They're not going to listen. Uh, surely Pharaoh won't listen either. But then at the beginning of our passage, what do Moses and Aaron find? They come back to Egypt, they assemble the elders, and, and they, they obediently speak all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And what kind of response do they get? Not only do the elders believe, but all the people of Israel believe. And when they hear that God had seen their suffering and had a plan to do something about it, they bow their heads and worship. It's it's a better response than Moses had ever expected, than he'd ever dreamed of. And so, you know, the ball's rolling. They're like, okay, this is off to a good start. We can do this. But then chapter 5 is downhill, downhill, downhill. And the end of the chapter, and the chapter ends with Israel and Moses in despair. There's three themes I want to look at this morning. Denying God leads to oppression. God never said it was going to be easy, and God wants us in our failure. Uh, First, denying God leads to oppression. Denying God leads to oppression. We see this theme in Moses' meeting with Pharaoh and its aftermath. Okay, hot on the heels of this great meeting with the elders, Moses and Aaron are all excited. You know, it's happening. God's doing it. The people are believing us. They're worshiping. Let's go talk to Pharaoh. Let's get this done. And they come in and boldly 
say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. It's forceful. It's strongly worded. This bold proclamation. But then Pharaoh responds, Who is this God named Lord? I don't know him. I've never heard of him. Why should I listen to his voice? Why should I obey his voice and let Israel go? Now that question, who is Lord, or who is the Lord, this God called Lord, and why should I obey him, is the central theme of the entire book of Exodus. We're going to see as we work through the plague cycles in the coming weeks that God keeps saying over and over again, I'm going to do this so they will know that I am the Lord, the God of all the earth. It's demonstrating his great power, who the Lord is. Pharaoh's tone is totally flippant. Who is the Lord? I've never heard of him. And yet the question is the right question. But instead of looking for answers, he concludes, I do not know this God named Lord, therefore I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh doesn't know the Lord, and therefore he will not obey him. It's the flip side of the basic biblical principle that when we know the Lord, we need to respond to his voice rightly. We need to obey him. On the other hand, if you don't know the Lord, then you ignore him. So Moses and Aaron try again, this time with a more reserved request. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go just a three days journey into the wilderness, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. But Pharaoh doubles down on his hard response. Moses and Aaron, you're keeping the people from their work. Get back to your burden. So then Pharaoh summons the Egyptian taskmasters and the foremen who are Israelites who have been uh, brought into the uh, uh, Egyptian hierarchy, and he commands them, you shall no longer give the people straw for their bricks as in the past. They can get their own straw. Apparently they have free time to think about worship and about seeking God and freedom. They can get their own straw, but they need to keep making the number, same number of bricks. That way, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no attention to lying words. That's how Pharaoh characterizes Moses' message. We see in this then, denying God leads to oppression. Pharaoh denies God and starts oppressing people. In Psalm 14, David writes, The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and as a consequence... They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good, they eat up my people as they eat bread, and they do not call on the name of the Lord. Denying God leads to oppression. Exodus 5 gives us a picture of the Pharaoh's system of oppression. It's set up like a pyramid. Pharaoh's at the top, he claims to be a god on earth who has authority over all things. And then you have these Egyptian taskmasters who are, uh, uh, enforce his rules and his production quota, no matter how arbitrary they may be. And then we have these Israelite foremen who have been enlisted into Pharaoh's service. And I suppose they play a, a sort of role of saying, look, if you work hard, you can get promoted, and you too can become a foreman. Just keep working at your uh, brick making. And then at the bottom are the Israelites who do the actual work. Pharaoh's strategy here, it's typical of tyrants. Burden them with more and more work so they don't have time to seek freedom or God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. That sort of thing happens in our day. People are burdened so that they don't look after freedom or question their conditions. 
But the irony is that so many of us burden ourselves with busyness. Activities, clubs, sports, hobbies, Netflix, phones, the list goes on and on. We burden ourselves with busyness so that we too have no time to cry out to God or pay attention to his word. Okay, why does uh, Exodus paint this picture so clearly for us? What's God about to do? He's about to save his people. But one of the points of Exodus is that God's salvation is spiritual. It's about right worship in right relationship with God. But it also always has effects on the material world. God's goal is new creation, the renewal of all things. And that means renovating hearts, renewing hearts, regeneration. But it also means dismantling oppressive regimes where people toil endlessly without meaning or the benefit of their work and have no time to worship. Of course, God's new creation work is only going to culminate when Jesus, the true king who knows the Lord and therefore serves God and frees his people, returns. Okay, So never in this life, never in this world, is a political system or a leader or whatever going to provide a perfectly just system. But God is still at work towards new creation throughout history, especially in the story of the people of Israel. I want to just reflect on this theme for a minute. Denying God leads to oppression. The same principle holds true in our day. Denying God leads to oppression. When we say in our hearts there is no God, then we put something else in God's place, and it becomes corrupt and oppressive. And so we think we find freedom by casting off God's authority, but it ultimately always leads to bondage and oppression. We fear powerlessness, so we seek power in all sorts of unhealthy ways. Okay, disclaimer, I'm going to talk about politics for a second, and that's going to make a lot of us uncomfortable. Now, a pulpit should never be used to advance a partisan cause. If it does, that makes God's word, it twists God's word to serve our politics, and that is uh, wrong. At the same time, if we never talk about political issues or politics at all, we're implicitly saying there's this whole area of our life that doesn't need to be subject to God's word. So what are we to do? We allow God's word to speak to us, even including our politics, but without ever being partisan. In Egypt, the Pharaoh claimed to be a god, and it led to oppression. And you put something else, the Pharaoh, the king, in God's place, and it leads to oppression. And in our day, when we put our nation or our political ideology or our economic theory in place of God, it leads to oppression. Acknowledging the transcendent God who is Lord over all things is a check on national and political power. The mighty are subordinate to the almighty, and the people flourish. Without accountability to a transcendent God, Healthy patriotism, which is a good thing, becomes nationalism, becomes the National Socialist Party. Okay? National prosperity and security are good things. We want our nation to flourish. We want our nation to be secure. But when that becomes your ultimate good, when that becomes your highest standard, it justifies all sorts of oppressive behavior for the good of the nation. We see it in Exodus. We see it in our day, subjugating people groups, killing their babies to protect your uh, national security, launching preemptive wars, and drone strikes, the list goes on. Okay, if you make nation your highest good, it justifies oppressing other nations. 
Or we set up political ideologies and economic theories as ultimate goods, the path to freedom, and yet it leads to oppression. The 20th century is littered with uh, uh, examples of this, although I guess my first example is pre-20th century, 19th century. The French Revolution denies God and king and says, here's the path to freedom. We uphold de democratic equality as our highest good, and yet if you know the history of the French Revolution, it quickly devolves into the reign of terror and even the leaders of the revolution, like Robespierre, end up being guillotined, 50,000 people indeed. Denying God leads to oppression. They make uh, equality the highest standard, and it becomes, even equality becomes oppressive. We see the same thing in our day. Think about the 20th century, okay? The big ideologies of communism and free market capitalism and this great war, and I'm not saying pro-communism, don't, don't mistake what I'm hearing here, and yet when we say free market is the highest value, we justify all sorts of atrocious things like firebombing Vietnam and all those sorts of things that in the cold light of day you say that was horrendous, that's oppressive. We see the same temptation in our own period, okay, and we recognize that politics is becoming an idol because when we look around, we see that when a party loses an election, it's not just a disappointment, but people actually despair and they panic. And we see people who disagree with others on political issues, and instead of just saying they're mistaken or wrong-headed, they say people on the other side are actually evil. What's happening? Instead of the story of the Bible where sin is the biggest problem and God's grace is the solution, we tell a different story where we say the biggest problem is government interference in business. And if we can just get that straightened out, everything will flourish. Or the biggest problem is all these, uh, you know, the government needs to get people in line, and so we need more government rules. And we, we say this is the biggest problem, and so the solution is this, and then we demonize people on the other side, and we also glorify something that is not God. Denying God doesn't lead to freedom, but to oppression. What we see in modern politics is what uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German 19th century philosopher, called will to power. He said Christianity is a slavish religion. It's for women and slaves, those that aren't strong. But the strong need to have will to power. They need to seize power for themselves and enforce their view on the world, shape the world after their own image. But scripture offers a different way. In place of Pharaoh, it offers a true king who gives up all of his power and comes not to be served, but to serve his people and to give his own life to bring them freedom. That's what we heard earlier. Only after the death and resurrection does Christ say all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, as we heard earlier this morning. And if it's a king who gives his own life for his people, we can trust this king's authority. Well, what do we do about it? We look around, our politics is becoming more foolish. Our politics says in its heart there is no God. It's increasingly idolatrous. And so what are we as Christians to do? Well, let's look back at Exodus and see this second theme. God never said it was going to be easy. God never said it was going to be easy. Israel hoped that God would indeed deliver them from slavery, and yet instead Pharaoh has only increased their burdens. Uh, Gary Haugen describes modern brickmaking, which apparently is quite similar to ancient brickmaking. He says, brick factories usually resemble a rustic fortress surrounded by walls seven or eight feet high to keep brick poachers out and keep slave laborers in. They have a dark otherworldly presence to them because of the dust and smoke that, ha uh, uh, that hang constantly in the air, coating everything within the walls with gray-red dust and soot. 
Tending the kilns especially is excruciatingly hot, dirty, and sticky. The workers covered with charcoal dust that mixes with the dust of clay and dirt until sweat-soaked skin become, begins to harden and crack. Uh, he goes on, uh, I'll, I'll just skip this, he, describing the brick-making. Uh, uh, hour after hour, day after day, weeks that flow into months, months that fade into years, some of these slaves have been at this dirty, tedious, painful work for decades with no relief in sight. Something like that fits Israel's condition. For at least a century now, they have been enslaved, making bricks, building cities, and things are now even worse. They're not even being supplied with their own materials. They've got to get up earlier to go find stubble uh, in place of straw to use as a binder in making these bricks. In Exodus 5.13, we see even the taskmasters, the middle management, are feeling the squeeze. And so they urge the people, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there is straw. Come on, we've got to get this done. And then the Israelite foremen who have been complicit working with the Egyptians, uh, they turn on them, and they're beaten, and they're asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Well, what do these foremen do in their time of trouble? Who do they turn to? Not God, not Moses. The foremen go around middle management directly to the Pharaoh to complain about unrealistic quotas and the beatings they've been received. Uh, these oppressed men have been taught that their well-being depends on Pharaoh, the oppressor. And yet, they find no sympathy from Pharaoh. Uh, they were complicit with him, working with his regime, and yet when the going gets tough, Pharaoh's happy to flip on them. See his response in 17? You are idle, idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. And after this disappointing audience with the Pharaoh, they come out and they see Moses and Aaron and they turn on them. The Lord judge you because you have made us a stink in the sight of the Pharaoh. Why did you rock the boat, Moses? Things weren't really that bad. You should have left well enough alone. And then Moses too despairs. But God never said it was going to be easy. In 3.19, he warned Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. In 4.21, God tells Moses, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go. Moses and Israel seem to have had totally unrealistic expectations that this was going to be a simple process. Of course, from our point of view, many of us know the uh, Egypt story or the Exodus story has 10 plagues, and so we expect that. We know it's coming. But from Moses and Aaron and Israel's point of view, they seem to have never guessed how long this battle between God and Pharaoh would go on. Nor do they seem to have even imagined that this tyrannical king's heart being hardened might have negative implications for the Israelite slaves who serve under him. And these unrealistic expectations about how easy it would be lead to despair. Friends, we fall into this trap all the time, too. Christians uh, have unrealistic expectations about what the Christian life will look like. And uh, as a result, they despair when things don't go well. The Bible does indeed tell us that God is at work putting all things right. That in all things, he's at work for the good of those who love him. But the Bible also tells us that the world has been disordered by human rebellion, and so it is full of pain and suffering and broken relationships and oppression 
and that all those things even happen within the household of God. The Bible gives us a realistic picture of light and darkness, of the goodness of God's creation and the severity of suffering in our world. Okay, I just finished the book of Judges in my devotional reading. Uh, The Bible is totally clear about how broken our world is. There's no evil that the Bible is unaware of. And we need to, have, we need to keep both sides of this in, in, in mind if we're going to have a realistic expectation about the Christian life. God never said it was going to be easy. The road from captivity and death to freedom and life leads through the Garden of Gethsemane and the Hill of Calvary. God never said it was going to be easy. Robust, lasting faith needs to take seriously both sides of that biblical portrait. Okay? There are going to be bad days. There's going to be bad months and bad years. There will be hard seasons. Friends, you and I, unless our gracious Lord returns, will one day die. And it's not going to be fun. Okay? The Bible tells us all these things, and we need to keep that in mind. God never said it was going to be easy. What then? Where does that lead us, leave us? In the last few verses of our passage, we see a third truth. God wants us even in our failure. God wants us even in our failure. Uh, before we look at Moses' prayer, consider Moses' failed, forceful attempt to get Pharaoh to let Israel go in verse 1. If you look back at 3.18, and you don't have to, don't worry, uh, just a second, but if you look back at 3.18, God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh And that message is almost identical to what Moses says in 5.3, that sort of more timid, uh, more measured request. Please let us go for a three-day journey. That's what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. But Moses and Aaron seem to have overplayed their hand. After their warm reception from the elders, they're overconfident. And so they come into Pharaoh's presence boldly, and they sort of ad-lib their lines. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Moses and Aaron thought they had it in the bag, and yet it's a disaster. Not only does Pharaoh uh, reject their request, but by the end of the chapter, Israel has turned against Moses and Aaron. Okay? Moses has failed again. He's trying to do what God called him to do. He's trying to do this ministry that God has called him into. And yet, the people that he's giving the message of freedom to, the Pharaoh, is hard-hearted and rejects it. The people that he's trying to bring freedom to the Israelites, the people he's ministering to, trying to help. They turn against him and they reject him. And Moses is left on his own. And again, this is a realistic portrait. Not everyone is going to be happy about the good work you try to do to help them. Sometimes people will even get upset with you. What is Moses to do? The foreman appealed to Pharaoh, but Moses appeals to God. What's our instinct when we fail? When we fail, we feel that we've not only let ourselves down, but we've let God down. And so typically we try to hide from God. We try to get away from his presence and spend some time uh, uh, getting ourselves in shape, making ourselves presentable, and then we come back to God and say, look how, look how good I am, God, you know, and, and somehow we can make up for that failure. But here in Exodus 5, we see part of the secret of Moses' great faith, why he is this giant of the faith. In the midst of his failure, in the midst of despair, when everything's falling apart, when he's made a mess of things, what does he do? He calls out to God. He appeals to God. Our instincts to try and hide it from God, to withdraw from him, 
But God wants us, even in our failure. When everything's a mess, everything's falling apart. Moses seems to be a total failure. There's nothing left for him to do but cry out to God. And I love that little line in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord. Then Moses turned to the Lord. And God wants him. Moses' prayer is bold. It's a lament. He lays everything that's gone wrong at God's feet. He says, oh Lord, why have you done this evil, or done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I wonder how many of us would be bold enough to pray a prayer like that. It lays the blame squarely at God's feet. Okay, Moses' tone may be questionable, but the fool from Psalm 14 who says in his heart there is no God would never pray a prayer like this. Because the fool doesn't take God seriously enough to blame him. He says God's irrelevant. There is no God. But Moses takes God utterly seriously. He recognizes that God alone can deliver Israel. And so he comes to God in, in prayer. And this is the truth of Exodus 5 and, and indeed other passages. Job tells us the same point. Uh, Abraham's story makes the same point. That God prefers that we take him totally seriously, even if it means that we argue with him and complain to him, rather than just write him off as irrelevant. Uh, if I can put it this way, God prefers the irreverent prayer to treating him as irrelevant. Do you see that Moses twice says in his prayer, done evil? Pharaoh has done evil to his people, but also Moses asks, why have you done evil to this people? Moses recognizes that behind Pharaoh, behind the ebb and tide of Egyptian politics and policies, behind all of the power structures of Egypt, stands God, the sovereign Lord over all things. Pharaoh may think that he's the one doing this, but Moses recognizes that God, it's in God's power to change the situation. And so he asks, why? Why have you done this? Why did you send me? Why? Why? In his moment of darkness and despair, when everything seems to be falling apart, when he seems to be defeated, he comes to God and asks why. And we see there's something fundamental about a real, living, vibrant relationship with God. At the darkness of the cross, when Christ seems to have been defeated, when everything seems to be falling apart, his disciples are fleeing, turning against him. Again, what does he pray? My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's fundamental. Our king who gave up his power, who came to give up himself, to redeem us, models for us faithful dependence on God, even at the most extreme, dire moment. What's God's response then? Uh, in the Hebrew text, the break is after 6 verse 1, not after 5.23, and so, so we're meant to read verse 1 with this, God's little response to Moses. God doesn't scold Moses. He doesn't say, how dare you talk to me like that? He doesn't say, Moses, if only you'd obeyed my word a little bit more closely, then this never would have happened. None of that. God doesn't tell Moses off for his failure because he wants us, even in our failure. What does God say? He says, now 
Now I'm ready to work. Uh, parents, you know the drill on 4th of July. Kids constantly ask, is it time for fireworks? And parents constantly say, it's not dark enough yet. Okay, and then finally sometime around 10 o'clock, it's dark enough, right? In a sense, that's what's going on here. It's time for the fireworks. At the end of chapter 5, it's totally dark. Okay, it's the darkest moment in Israel's history. It's the darkest moment in Moses' own life. It's totally dark. And so now it's time for fireworks. Now God's work will shine its brightest. God tells Moses, now, now you shall see what I will do to the Pharaoh. When everything falls apart, when everything's at its darkest, that's when God is ready to work. Uh, John Calvin comments, we do not sufficiently exalt the power of God if we do not consider it greater than our weakness. Faith, therefore, ought not to look to our weakness, misery, and defects, but should fix its whole attention on the power of God alone. What's Calvin saying? He's saying God wants us even in our failure because that's when his strength is shown. When everything's falling apart, that's when God shows his creative power. God's not looking for people who say, I made it three quarters of the way, now you just carry me the last little bit. He's looking for people who rightly, humbly say, God, without you, I am nothing. With you, I am everything. Powerlessness, uh, it can lead you to dependency and trying to grasp at power, Nietzsche's will to power. You seek national, political, personal power. But doing so, we deny in our hearts God, and it leads to oppression. But Christ shows us the opposite way to true freedom. He surrenders his power. He learns to experience dependence on God as friendship. And he is enthroned upon a cross. He's Pharaoh's exact opposite. He knows God and therefore obeys God's command perfectly. So what do we do then, friends? When the moment of despair comes, when everything seems to be at its darkest, when you have failed, call out to God. When all you can do is ask why God is there, God is listening, God wants you, even in your failure. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your great grace. In grace, you condescend to us and let us argue with you. Even when we're in the wrong, you listen to our complaints. Indeed, you delight to hear us uh, come to you in prayer and in our need. Gracious Lord, we ask that we would continually, daily, recurrently turn to you. On our good days, may we be steadfast in your presence. But especially when we fail, let us not withdraw from your presence, but come to you with our wise. Lord, Exodus 5 highlights for us the temptation of political idols and national idols. It's hard for us not to see idolatry rampant in our current day in the way people think about politics. It's a challenging word, Lord, that you have given us this morning, and yet we ask that you would help us to increasingly make sure that we submit to you all of our thoughts all of our plans, all of our intentions. Let us not deny you in our hearts. Let us not be like the fool who says there is no God, but let us take into account the sovereign Lord of all things.
We thank you that we can come into your presence, no matter how good or how bad we've been this last week, and that you warmly embrace us through the work of Christ Jesus, our King. Amen.